This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. We're here, some of us for centuries, contributing, building and upholding the values of this country. Are we alone in being thankful to be British? Or do other immigrant communities feel the same as us? And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O clouds, unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, is an instinct of Jewish diaspora communities across the world. But that doesn't mean we don't enjoy pluralistic freedoms to pray, to associate, and private freedoms to start families, build businesses. So what does being British mean to you? It'll be a comfort to many Jewish people that the immigrant experience is shared in other communities. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. This is the second episode of a two-part series on the future of Britishness, patriotism and the nation-state. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Trevor Phillips talked about a sense of mission creep in diversity and Karen Harradine distinguished between power and influence, arguing that though Trump and Johnson were in power, many of our institutions were influencing against them. Scroll back after this episode to hear the first part of this twin podcast on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Today, Catherine Burbell Singh on the unifying call of Britishness for those of us lucky to live here and Inaya Falarin Iman on how humanity and its possibilities should always be counted above identity. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Colonel Richard Kemp joked with me that Jews are actually more patriotic than the general population. I mean, most Jews I've met in this country are far more patriotic than most non-Jews right. in this country. Yes. And if you you know you just t- you just take for example in a synagogue on a Friday uh, there are prayers for the queen and there are prayers for Absolutely. the armed forces. Now <laughs> I don't know I very much doubt you'll find either of those in the Church of England. And multi-million selling record producer Trevor Horn quoted Leviticus. In the Jewish faith it says um, seek the fortune or seek the um, success of the city to which you have been exiled. You know, and I think that's, I think that's the the way you have to look at Jews. That's what they do. Jews try and make things better. They're they're 
they're in a country and and they may not, you know, they, they grow a slightly separate religion, but if you need them to help with anything, they're an amazing resource, you know. Scroll back for these two amazing interviews earlier. You'll hear views expressed today which chime from within Jewish families. Catherine Burbal Singh came to prominence 10 years ago when at that year's Conservative Party conference, speaking in support of the party's education policies, she slated a culture of excuses, of low standards, a sea of bureaucracy and the chaos of our classrooms because it keeps poor children poor. After huge rows and barriers put up in front of her as she confronted a prevailing culture, she set up the Michaela Secondary School in Wembley. Her pupils read five Shakespeare plays in three years. They're taught a culture of kindness, which includes helping each other and their families and offering adults their seats on buses in the tube. She also has an incisive word about how black and Asian kids are subtly told they're not British. Do you feel you've had to prove yourself more than most because of your philosophies on education? Yes, we take a slightly different way of doing things um, with regard to behaviour, with regard to teaching methods, with regard to ethos. And so it's been a bit of a fight to persuade people that this is an option that's worth trying. I mean, now with our outstanding Ofsted and with our results for GCSEs last year, it seems pretty obvious that this is a a valid way of doing things. But when we started, it was far from being valid. People thought we were a bit crazy, frankly, to, to be doing what we were doing. There is a prevailing wind in education which still blows against you, Catherine. So do you still... Are people there trying to sort of trip you up all the time? If there are any sort of dropping of standards, I know that obviously discipline and standards are central to your ethos, but... There's a lot of people not on your side. Yeah, that's true. Although I have to say many of them have, have fallen by the wayside over the years. And uh, I do feel in a way many of them have just given up uh, because we've kept on going. And it is hard to argue against a school that is uh, giving inner city children chances that they wouldn't otherwise have had, that's teaching them so well that they're, you know, they really are just uh, defying all the expectations. And also, we get over 600 visitors every year, mainly teachers, and all those teachers say, my goodness, they're so well-behaved, they're so curious, they're so independently-minded, they're so nice, you know, the children are just nice. So when, when you've got anecdotal evidence like that, and you've also got the kind of data that shows that we're doing very well, it is hard to argue against it. So... People who do argue against it, it tends to just be um, personal attacks. You know, they just don't like me or they don't like they don't like what the school stands for. And, and they'll tend to say things like, oh, no, not that school again. <laughs> but they don't really have any arguments because, well, there are no arguments. So they just dislike us without, well, they're just prejudiced, basically. Now, Catherine, what's it like to be an outlier? Because you came to prominence because of the um, speech you'd made at the Conservative Party conference to be at odds with prevailing thought on education. I know that you say some of your rivals have melted away as you've just kept going, but nevertheless, there is an institutional prejudice against your philosophy, which you continue to have to fight the good fight. Yes, yeah, sorry, that's just our lesson changeover. We're at school, so right. <laughs> um, 
go along because you won't have lots of disruption because the children move very sensibly towards the, <laughs> to the That's good to hear. Uh, yeah, so you were saying, yes, no, you're right. There is institutional prejudice against what we do. Um, and so any school trying to set up to, in doing what we do uh, will have some trouble. Um, but I think far less than we did. Um, what I find, you see, if a school sets up and decides to be a Michaela school, that's probably doable. What's less doable is when you have middle managers or ordinary teachers who come to visit us and love what we do and they want to make that happen at their school and they find it more difficult to try and persuade people at the school that this might be the way to go. Having said that, the thing about schools is that one can have a, a certain amount of autonomy running one's own department or in one's own classroom. So I find that teachers do take some of our ideas and install them perhaps just in their one classroom in the school, and they make that difference to their own children who they're teaching, while perhaps other teachers around them are, are, won't, won't really participate in that. Now, you've said that uh, kids using the race card when in disputes with teachers, uh, and you've warned parents to take uh, children's claims of racism with a pinch of salt when disciplined at school, and you claim that young black students are being held back from success in school by teachers who are scared of being called racist what happened to being a hero why is this generation so obsessed with being a victim well i mean i think it's probably always been the case except our culture nowadays has um and children always say it wasn't me i mean it doesn't matter what color they are that's what kids do <laughs> of any yes, age including you know, mine or 14 i mean anybody who's a parent knows you catch them in the middle of something and they say oh, it wasn't me it was her or oh, i didn't do anything at all i mean that's what they do um and they'll use any excuse possible to get themselves out of trouble the key thing that one needs to do as a teacher or as a parent is be able to figure out what's going on so that they don't pull the wool over your eyes because if they do pull the wool over the, your eyes, then they'll do it again and again. The kid doesn't realize that he's actually harming himself and that later in life, he's not going to be able to get the GCSEs he wants or get the job that he wants or get into the university that he wants and that he won't be the kind of person that <clears throat> you might like him to be. And it'll all be because you believed him every time he said, oh, I didn't take the muffin, mum," and oh, no, I don't know what happened to to that vase of yours and and so on and so forth you know you need to make sure that you are able to see through that not because you dislike your child but because you love your child that's what it is to love a child uh to be their parent or to be their teacher to be an authority uh in front of them who doesn't allow them to just get away with stuff and that's not because you know people have a strange idea that well i obviously dislike children which is why i'm in school every morning at half past six and been doing so for over 20 years I do that because um, I love children and I love helping to mold them into the adults that they will later become. And it's a, it's a real privilege it, it, to be able to do that uh, with a child, you know, and it's a privilege that we must take seriously and do it with care. And that means holding them to account and punishing them when they're naughty, but also uh, rewarding them when they do things well and explaining to them, first of all, the difference between right and wrong so that they're able to make the correct choices for themselves. Now, they may often fail at doing so. Most children do. That's what it is to be a child. They're learning how to get it right so that later when they're adults, they'll make mistakes fewer times than when they were a child. And that, that, that is what it is to be a child. And too often we um, mistake children for adults. 
and we treat them like adults and we treat them as if they're experts. Well, they're not. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. They need to be taught these things and it's our job to do so. Now, you have advocated for the singing of patriotic British songs, I Vow to Thee, My Country, or Jerusalem. So where do you get your patriotism from? Is it about being British or is it really actually about the perceived values of what Britain means to you over the last few centuries? I mean, I may not have been born here, but I came, I, I'd say I became British in, in 2002 when we were playing, uh, notice how I say we, when we were playing, England was playing in the World Cup in Osaka in Japan. And um, I was at school because of the time difference. And I think we were playing Nigeria. And, uh, and all the male teachers, I mean, there were a few female teachers, but mainly the male teachers went off into the gym to watch the, the, the match. And uh, you know, the children hadn't arrived yet. I think this was like seven in the morning or something. Anyway, off they went. And, um, and when they came back, I said to them, did we win? And it was the first time I'd been here for some 13 years at that point and it was the first time that i caught myself saying we i very much believe that i'm british and i think that uh, that is the case uh for all migrants who move around the world you uh, you find yourself a home and then you, i'm very grateful to this country for taking me in and i think that it's important for our children here growing up i mean it is their country as much as anyone else's country and the, the habit that the media has and that schools have of looking at ethnic minority children and telling them that they're not British, and they do so, you know, they don't go up to them and say, you're not British. What they do is they say things like, oh, we must celebrate where you're really from. Let's all bring in our, our home flag. And so the children bring in their Jamaican flags and their Nigerian flags and so on. Or let's bring in, you know, your home food and so on. And that's not to say that, you know, I eat jerk chicken and rice and peas just as much as anyone else because um, my mother is Jamaican but uh, that doesn't mean that I can't both feel that I'm British and have an affinity towards Jamaica I certainly don't feel Jamaican you know I go to Jamaica quite a lot um, I have family there my mother is Jamaican my father's Guyanese but I don't feel West Indian I mean my parents are from the West Indies and they are very much West Indian but I am not and, and neither are the children here at school and uh, I think if we want a successful society and a successful country, uh, we need to make sure that all of us feel like we are British. And then you mentioned the values that Britain has. Well, absolutely. So the values, we believe in democracy. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in the right to be gay. You know, if um, in Saudi Arabia, I imagine they have discussions all the time about whether or not women should be allowed to drive. Now, recently they gained that right in Saudi Arabia, but there'll be lots of people who don't think that they ought to have the right to drive. And they're perfectly entitled to have those discussions in Saudi Arabia. But it would never be the case that we on television would sit down at eight o'clock in the evening on primetime television to listen to a debate about whether or not women should be allowed to drive. And the reason we don't do that in Britain is because it's not part of what it is to be British. And quite right, you know, that's what we believe in. And this, these values and our belief in our country is what binds us together and gives us something in common. It's what we value. I think we've missed a bit of a trick by rejecting the nation state, because when we do so, we then are not British together. We have to reduce ourselves down to the next grouping. So you've got various groupings in life. You've got your 
nuclear family, then you've got your community, you know, larger family, I suppose, uncles and aunts and so on. You've got your school community. Um, you might consider yourself, for instance, to be a Londoner if you live in London. And then outside of that, you've got your country. And if you don't have your country, then you'll find yourself regressing to something smaller. And I do believe that that's one of the reasons why we are so tribal at the moment. And we think, well, you know, I'm black and you're white and so-and-so is Indian. And, so and we have these divisions according to race and to tribe um, rather than to the nation state, which binds us all together. Um, because I don't actually see any difference between my white children and my black children and my brown children here. They're all British children. But if you don't believe in the nation state, then you will see the difference between those children. And I think that that's kind of racist, essentially, because to judge someone by the color of their skin is racist. And I think it's wrong not to see all of our children as being quite the same, really. Because that is the charge against this extremist identity politics, quite the contrary to what Martin Luther King taught us uh, we're suddenly being um, valued by the color of our skin not the content of our character so these are your beliefs Catherine what are you telling your children about Black Lives Matter which is really the antithesis of what you're saying yeah I mean we don't there's no we haven't really spoken about Black Lives Matter I mean we are here there aren't that many of them in September I don't imagine we'll talk that much about it I mean if uh, children were to ask me, then I would explain to them my views about it. But um, I mean, I don't know. We've got lots of history to learn and geography to learn um, and motivating assemblies about how to be resilient and how to keep on going and how not to be a victim. I suspect our children will be questioning some of the, some of, because I mean, I, you know, I believe in Black Lives Matter in the sense that, um, you know, I believe that black lives do matter. And I believe that there's a, there's a right place to discuss racism and to look at the disparities in uh, our society and try and fix them. In fact, that is indeed what I do. I've done my entire life. <laughs> so I'm all for that. What I'm not for is pulling down statues or in an illegal fashion. You know, I'm quite happy to have the discussion. And I think people ought to have that discussion. But uh, I don't think they should be doing what they have been doing. Our children know that. I mean, they know that I would not be approving of of, of this kind of behavior. Um, I mean, I don't need to stand up at assembly and tell them that. They know. Yes, yes. Um, and I think a number of them would also be disapproving. But I also think that there'll be some of them who think that we should pull them down. And you know why? Because our children are critical thinkers and they disagree with each other and they have their own minds. And so wonderful, you know, presumably maybe when we come back, you know, when we, our debate club starts up again, I, I suspect actually in that we would probably talk about Black Lives Matter. I, I don't know what they'll say. We'll go along and um, I'll go along and listen in and then I'll report back to you and let you know their thoughts. That's excellent. I'm really pleased to hear that. So, of course, it's a wider value system. It's about teaching history and geography. It's about critical thinking. It's not shying away from discussions. And I listened to your very entertaining uh, recent trigonometry uh, uh, podcast, and uh, you told us that the Israelis and Palestinians weren't listening to each other. Uh, Catherine, mm. I, I really wish the solution lay in that, because actually the hard, it, it's the hardest edge 
of the culture wars that we're now fighting in the West. It is the militarised edge of it applied to clashing ideologies and territorial claims. There is listening going on. There are attempts at peace, certainly on the Israeli side. I do wish that it was just down to listening because I do firmly believe the Israelis are attempting to listen, do want peace and do want to move on. And indeed, many of the normal um, sort of Arab communities, not just in the Palestinian territories, but around, I have had contact with some of them, um, just wish for peace for Israel because the military, the extremists are stopping uh, the, the cause of peace. It's not about listening. Possibly. I mean, look, I can't talk to you about Israel and Palestine because I don't know enough about it. I mean, what I'd said in the interview with Trigonometry was that the situation here now reminds me of Israel and Palestine in that neither mm. side will budge. As, as in any argument, if, if neither side gives in a little, then you just end up with a war. And I, I worry that the situation here in Britain is becoming increasingly like that, where there's too much confusion. And I know that now, with regard to Black Lives Matter, for instance, or with regard to the statues, for instance, people just dig their heels in. So I see this a lot on Twitter. There are some people who think uh, it's obvious that the statues should come down and how dare anybody suggest otherwise. And then there's a whole bunch of people who think this is outrageous. Statues obviously shouldn't come down. And neither side is listening to what the other side is saying. I, I would even say that both sides find it very difficult to articulate what their views are. And so what ends up happening in the end is that one side or both sides will take the law into their own hands and they just go off and do whatever. And that's where, you know, we believe in the rule of law. We are a country that is um, civilized. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd say belief in the rule of the law is, is one element of, of being able to call yourself civilized. And yet, I do think we are sort of losing some of that civilization. And I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, blame it on one side. I suppose that was my point about Israel or Palestine. I mean, you obviously are saying it's quite clear to, to you that it is one side that needs to be blamed. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's true in any argument, even, you know, between boyfriends and girlfriends or whoever. You know, it's that the two sides see things very differently. And one needs to make an effort uh, to try and see it from the point of view of the other person or the other side. Otherwise, all you do is shout at each other and then you part ways. I mean, that's kind of, you know, and, and that's the solution. And it's not a solution, you know, not if we want a successful country because we're all living here together. And I do worry that we just haven't managed to, to, to get people to listen. That's what I see on Twitter anyway. You know, I, I do. And I mean, I know Twitter is representative of real life, they say, but... I think a lot of the people who follow me are just perfectly normal people. And they, and some of them do listen, and some of them do have conversations. But I'd say that that's more rare. Most of the time, sides are not listening to each other. Catherine Burbell Singh, I said recently that each interview that I do it moves me, changes me in, uh, in an incremental fashion, and this one has done so as well. So thank oh. you very much indeed for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you. Now to Inaya Falarin Iman. Writer, commentator and campaigner. She speaks on freedom of speech and expression, democracy, liberty and human potential. Born in London, she's Yoruba, predominantly indigenous to West Africa. 
And she's on the board of the Free Speech Union, a mass membership organisation dedicated to combating those who seek to no platform, those who speak out against the so-called prevailing wisdom. Let's start with Black Lives Matter. I think we've essentially seen the kind of globalisation um, of American racial cultures. All of the nuances and complexities of the racial situation in Britain has completely flattened and we are basically seeing um, this kind of you know, black versus white uh, a situation, which is really quite a unique phenomenon um, in America. Because Catherine Burbell Singh has said that if you want to teach black history in this country... You don't just say it started with the Windrush. Mm. There were black people here in the, in medieval times. Not many, but it's part of the makeup, and it explains a little bit of the time span mm. between what is British history, British black history, and American black history. Yeah. It's a start. I resist this whole kind of instrumental um, idea of education, where education should is kind of used in order to push forward a particular political agenda. I think that it's great to learn more about um, you know, different sides of history and what things happen, but I think that we should understand these things in context. If we're going to talk about slavery, that's, that's important, but let's also understand about how many kind of white working class people were, were subjugated under indentured servitude in Britain. So I think, and also how um, you know, slave trade in the Arab world and, and, and intra-slavery um, in Africa as well. So I think that if we just kind of focus it on, and then say that kind of Black history starts and ends with transatlantic slavery. I think that's a very limited understanding of history. Now, it must be infuriating to see an organisation which appears to do the opposite of Martin Luther King, which is to judge a person by the colour of their skin, not the content of their character. Yeah, I think this is a really important point. I think a lot of people just think Black Lives Matter, the organisation, and many of the kind of anti-racist um, protests um, that we've seen recently is just a continuation of the kind of legacy of anti-racism historically. But actually, it's a significant departure. As you've just described, um, anti-racist struggles, particularly like anti-colonial struggles, were often defined in universalistic terms, in humanistic terms. It wasn't to judge by race, to see race, to emphasise race. It was to emphasise a common humanity. Mm. And that's very different mm. to what we see now, which is a kind of the whole white privilege, black victimhood. It's a very conflict-driven narrative as opposed to something that emphasises what unites us. There's something that really bugged me about Importing, globalising, as you put it, globalising black history from the American experience, is that there are real, genuine social justice issues in the US, a lack of access to health care for the poorest, which obviously disproportionately affects African Americans. But we have an NHS here which is available to everyone. You go in there with a broken arm, they don't treat you in order. We do have, at the very centre of our society this massive social justice mechanism which is they look after our health as a obviously black British person, it's really disheartening um, to look at some of the um, situations in Britain in relation to race relations of the kind of 80s and the 70s. And we've come such a long way in any kind of um, anti-racist struggle or movement that doesn't recognise the leaps and bounds that we've come in relation to race relations. For me, it's deeply concerning. But you mentioned um, health, and I think that's really important. But we also see that with education. You know, people talk about you know discrimination in education. Actually, some of the most achieving high achieving ethnic groups in Britain is actually British Nigerians right. Yeah, so the picture is not one solely right. of race, there's many different factors that are involved, you know, class ethnicity, um, culture, values many yes. things make up the picture that we see today, it's not a solely binary race one. Now I spoke up against the Premier League's decision to 
imbibe itself into their pre-match ritual of a salute, saying very simply that political movements, including defunding the police, deconstructing capitalism and the abolishment of Israel for a so-called free Palestine should be kept away from our apolitical game. One of the key things about the English game, which is what football is, is that it was syndicated around the world because of its values of winning, of personal achievement, of team achievement. I think they've made a catastrophic cultural error because they're creating conflict where there was peace. Football um, is a, a really good example in terms of, you know, it, it's a really diverse game. You know, there's many things to celebrate um, about that. In some ways, football is, is, is very much like a genuine meritocracy. You know, yeah. the, the best um, players are usually the most successful and the most famous. And again, you know, it's not just football, though. We see it with film, we see it with music videos, we see it with art now, often having an overtly political message. And unfortunately, as you've just kind of described, many people jump on the kind of what's popular, but don't actually deeply understand some of the yeah. things that many of these movements are advocating for that are actually often in contrary to the values that games like football actually promote. And this is why, again, I, I want to see a much more value and principle orientated struggle, you know, talking about universalism, as I mentioned, you know, freedom of speech, um, hard work, self-discipline, personal responsibility. These are values, I believe, that resonate with all people across races and really kind of emphasise, um, again, a genuine meritocracy. If we, if we solely define things on this very one-dimensional notion, then I think that is a recipe for conflict because most people don't see themselves solely in those terms and it's not just sport it's of course it's charities public sector bodies telling people what to say and what to believe um, if you don't have a hierarchy above you um, as Douglas Murray said it's down to comedians and writers to be the spokesperson for the whole world it's it's quite a, a massive burden but actually isn't there a corollary here which says that you know actually um one of the worst possible things that could happen to BLM is that it is taken on board by the big corporations and the Premier League. In other words, the elites in their different areas. Because, of course, once it's taken hostage by corporates, nothing will change. Mm. Um, many of these activists seem to see no problem with the, the, the elite and the establishment, particularly the cultural media technological establishment, being so on board with their, their ideology. And I think that actually that tells you that many of the things um, that uh, the kind of so-called anti-racist movements of, of the modern day in, in Western society are not actually challenging you know, the status quo. Actually, oftentimes it's giving the status quo an opportunity to reinvent itself. They can yeah. engage in these meaningless gestures like, you know, putting on a badge saying Black Lives Matter, putting a black square but actually getting to the deep rooted issues that look at the, the deep structural inequalities that are face, affecting people of all races yeah. we don't have to do anything about because we've, done the, we've yeah. done the phrase, we've done the hashtag and that seems yeah. enough and you just mentioned a word there, anti-racist which means that Jewish people are in the middle here because anti-racist doesn't mean against racism it's because the anti-racist argument is based upon largely skin colour mm. and it says that everything is um, binary and so therefore the formation of Israel with its majority population in the crudest terms of being Jews who are brown mm. I, d I hate to say that I, d I don't want to say that but it's not white colonial mm. it's not exactly. um, um, because the Jews in the world are predominantly well of first of all of every ethnicity mm. Um, but but the but there's a there's a fault line in their argument, oh, and it therefore creates 
a racism against Jewish people. Oh, absolutely. This is the problem that we've got with this. So, uh, you know, you mentioned um, Jewish people who have historically suffered significant oppression. And, um, you know, that's inconvenient to their narrative. We see it, you know, a similar thing happening with Indian people. You know, we've seen all of these labels of the Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel because yeah. these are ethnic minorities that are successful, that feel patriotic, that feel like they belong and don't believe that racism is a significant experience of their daily life. Yeah. They're no longer fit into this kind of intersectional yeah. hierarchy. And so, yeah, I, I think it, the, these kinds of examples demonstrate the kind of very, huge simplicity and vacuousness of this modern form of um, you know, anti, um, identity politics. Let's talk about free speech now, because the MASH report encapsulates um, the kind of um, problems that we have in this area. There was a segment of two comedians agreeing with each other in, 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 in a kind of, it wasn't that funny. Um, the canned laughter helped. Yeah. <laughs> the situation. At one stage, the female comedian declared that free speech is now basically a way that adults can say racist stuff without any consequences, without any hint of irony. Um, the idea that free speech is this something, you know, inconvenient that is used by racists is a completely warped notion of free speech. You know, free speech, democracy, you know, freedom of association, freedom of religion, these are fundamental building blocks of our democratic society. The, these privileges that we um, um, enjoy, that we should be hugely grateful for, are completely just being ignored. You know, free speech is not um, a given, it's not inevitable, it is against all odds and it's something that we must fight for every day. Um, Greg Lukayanov describes free speech as the eternally radical idea and I, and I deeply agree with that and I think that um, this isn't going to go away I don't think that we can just wait it out and assume that it will calm down right now we have a very deep ideological capture of many of our institutions and I think it's for ordinary people to start standing up against this but also um, our political institutions to start being much more forthright in defending our freedoms because in my episode with US Special Envoy Ilan Carr who is the anti-Semitism Tsar for Donald Trump. He talked about the American concept of free speech and protected speech. The left-wing argument is that allowing free speech completely will attract people using it as cover. I wonder if you can unpack that for our audience who may worry about the perils of unfettered free speech. Free speech, um, in many ways, is actually the opposite if you're, of, of hate. You know, if you are a liar, if you are a um, deceptive person, you would not want to support free speech because it enables people to expose and to ridicule, you know, your deceptive behaviour. Historically, free speech has actually existed in order to protect um, minorities mm. because if you are a minority, you may not necessarily have power and popularity and privilege where you, your free speech rights don't necessarily need to be protected. It's those of the minority that need to be protected. And we see that historically, whether that was, you know, the gay rights movement, um, the, the, the kind of civil rights movement in America, these views were often um, offensive to dominant sensibilities and the power structures at that time. But it was because they had free speech rights um, enabled them to articulate their suffering and challenge their subjection to the structures that be at the time. So often, um, what we, when we look historically, free speech has always been on the side of people that have been struggling for fairness and justice. It's always been... Um, institutions that are unfair and, and, and structures that are rigid that have sought to um, very narrowly define the parameters to which people can um, articulate themselves. Mm, mm. I went to the synagogue for the first time in about four months because they opened it up and um, it was a very different kind of service. Apparently we weren't allowed to sing, which was a blessing for some of the people, I can tell you. But by the by, uh, the service was a whole lot shorter. Everyone was covered in surgeons' masks. The rabbi sung a bit. No one else was allowed to. But 
it was a change of temperature from the outside world. I just kind of want to know how important you think maybe spirituality is in life. For me, having this level of spirituality, I might not be the most religious person in the world, but uh, I get the spiritual wave and it gives me a kind of completely different narrative on the world. I just want to know where spirituality fits into your life. Yeah, so um, I'm happy you've asked me this because I actually haven't been asked this so far. And um, so I'm not a religious person, but I would consider myself broadly a spiritual person. And I actually do think that that really significantly influences my views on politics, and particularly in relation to this conversation about race, because I see human beings as you know these incredible, you know, multifaceted, creative beings that you know create meaning in the world and can do so much and have so much potential. You know, we look around us and we see all of these incredible things we've built. I mean, in the last few weeks. Elon Musk has launched a rocket into space. I mean, and so... A private sector rocket. Exactly. It's an incredible achievement. That is something. (laughs) Exactly. And so when I see so many of these conversations about, you know, race and gender, you know, I, I feel like it's so limiting of who we are you know we've got so much yeah. history we've got so much future and there's so many things that we can do on this small time we have on this planet and so that's what i think about when i'm engaged in politics how do we push the boundaries how do we go beyond and and, and not um, get stuck in essentially this cul-de-sac of thinking where we're theorizing constantly about our race or our gender i think yeah. that's incredibly myopic and i think it limits um, our potential i'm going to say amen after that Inaya Falarin Iman, thank you very much for joining us on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Inaya Falarin Iman and Catherine Burbal Singh. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.